Good evening and welcome to our service. Let me just mention a couple of uh, items uh, as intimations really. One of them is already on your uh, your notice sheet for today and that's the uh, presenter psalm singing workshop to be held uh, in this church um, on the 26th of October. Uh, it's not just for people who, have already, who are already doing some presenting, it's for anybody else who would like to uh, learn or, or consider it. You'll not be asked to do anything, uh, so come along if you can, and hopefully we'll have an evening of learning and worshipping together. The other thing is uh, something that we're hosting over in, in the Free North uh, in November, on the 11th of November. Uh, the conference, it's a, confer- a day conference on Saturday, Raising Kids for Christ in a Confusing World. And the speaker is Mel Lacey, who's involved um, with that a program of discipleship and working with young people. She's been involved for, for many years. It's for parents, grandparents, uh, Sunday school teachers, um, anybody involved in, in youth work. I do commend it to you. If you go on to the, the Free North um, Facebook page or website, you can see um, the page because people are asked to register so that we know how many people are going to be able to attend on the day. But do come if you can, if you're at all involved with young people or concerned for young people and helping them in this day and age, then I do commend it to you. Our call to worship tonight uh, comes from Isaiah chapter 25. At the beginning of the the chapter, this is what uh, we read. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness you have done marvellous things, things planned long ago. Well, let's join together in the, in the worship of God as we continue the public worship of God and sing Psalms, Psalm 147. Psalm 147, at the beginning of that psalm, we sing uh, from verse 1 to the end of the verse, marked 7. O oh, praise the Lord, how good it is to sing him songs of praise. How pleasant to give thanks to him for all his gracious ways. Let's rise as we sing these five stanzas to the praise of God.
Shall we draw near to God as we pray together? Ever blessed God, we give thanks that we can come once again as we offer our praise and our worship to you. We thank you that you are a great God and a great Saviour. And so we come tonight in that name that is above every other name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that through him we find access into your presence, that we can come and draw near. Because he is the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of great power and wonder. And the Psalms again and again remind us just how great you are. As we look around us, as we see uh, this, not only this earth, but the universe. Uh, and as we know so little about it. Uh, and yet we recognize its infinity. Which reminds us of how eternal and infinite you are. And so we come, Lord, and we offer our worship to you. But we thank you that although you are high and holy and lifted up, yet you come and draw near. You come and deal with us graciously. You come and make yourself known to us. You come and care for us as a father cares for his children. And so we thank you, Lord, that we can draw near uh, tonight and come uh, and ask for your blessing and seek your face as we come together. Lord, we pray that you would shine on us with your face, that the earth your way and nations all may know your saving grace. We thank you that you are a God of grace and of mercy, that although our sins testify against us, yet you have provided a way whereby we can be forgiven and cleansed and renewed. O oh Lord, we pray then that you would create a clean heart within us and renew a right spirit and enable us to come and know fellowship with you as we are in your presence. Lord, we thank you that you know us, you know our hearts, you know the needs that we have and we thank you that you are able to come and draw near and that your strength is made perfect even in our weakness. That you give grace upon grace, grace to help in every time of need. We thank you, Lord, for today and for uh, the opportunity just to come apart, to turn aside, to rest from the things that normally occupy us, and to spend time in worship as we gather together around your word and with your people. And we thank you that we have that, uh, the freedom to do that. And we thank you that even today in this land there have been many who have met together uh, in different places and at different times to offer worship, to hear your voice and to seek to follow you as your disciples. And so we pray that as we have begun this new week that you would go with us, that you would go before us, that you would lead us and direct us uh, during these coming days that we might truly serve you and be your witnesses in this world. You are sending us out, Lord, uh, as your people to be salt and to be light in the world. And so we pray that you would help us in all our uh, dealings with others, in our communities, where we shop, where we go for work, where we meet people for relaxation. Lord, we pray that wherever we go, we might go uh, remembering that we are your ambassadors. We are your people. 
And we are in this world uh, as to provide light in the midst of the darkness. We thank you that Jesus is the light of the world. And that we, we pray that as he dwells within us, that light might shine. And we might indeed be a blessing to others. Again, if there are those who are unable to join us, who are laid aside, or who are away, are away at this time, we pray for them, that they might know uh, your uh, care, your protection, your presence with them day by day, but through the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you again for your goodness to us, for the many blessings that we receive, for the things that we often take for granted. Lord, we uh, do want to give thanks. We recognize that every good and every perfect gift comes from your hand. And so we pray that you would receive our thanks, that you would make us a thankful people, and may the joy of the Lord be our strength. We offer these prayers now in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue to praise God as we sing in the words of Psalm 36. Psalm 36 in Sing Psalms. And we're going to sing from verses 5 through to verse 10. As we praise God once again. Singing from verse 5. Your steadfast love is great, O Lord. It reaches heaven high. Your faithfulness is wonderful, extending to the sky. We sing from verse 5 to the end of the verse, Mark 10. Let's praise the Lord once again.
this evening in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus and we begin to read in chapter 5 at verse 22 reading on into chapter 6. Moses has returned from the wilderness where he met with God in the burning bush and he's gone to Pharaoh with the request that the people might be able to leave Egypt in order to worship God. And all that has happened is that Moses has increased the, uh, made the conditions worse for the people and, it, and said no. And so that's where we take up the, the reading at verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen 
How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Amen and may God bless our reading and hearing of his own holy and inspired word. Let's again draw near to God as we pray together. Gracious God, we come as we wait upon you and we thank you that your word reminds us that those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. And so we come, Lord, and we seek your face and we bring our prayers before you as the God who hears our prayers, who delights in the prayers of his people. Lord, we do ask for your blessing to be upon us and, and our witness and the witness of your people here in this congregation and this community. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us and give us the wisdom that we need day by day as we seek to serve you and to be your people in this world. We do pray for the conference that is being planned for November uh, to help uh, parents and grandparents and uh, those involved in youth work to raise up a new generation. We thank you for the opportunities we have um, uh, as members of families, uh, in churches, in schools, in different places to be your, your people and your witnesses. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would indeed help us and give us the grace, the wisdom <coughs> and the understanding of the times that we need so that we might truly uh, share uh, this message with the next generation. We thank you, Lord, for those who are Christian teachers, uh, for those who are Christian young people in schools. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless them and that you would guard them and that you would keep them. And during this time of holiday, we pray that they might be refreshed and, and renewed uh, as they are away from the normal routines of life. Lord, we do ask that you would come in blessing. We have seen the rain coming down over these past days. And so we pray that even as we have seen the rain coming from the sky, so we would see uh, showers of blessing. We would see a revival in these days. Lord, we, do know, we need your presence. We need your Holy Spirit. We need you to come amongst us and do a work in our hearts to draw us closer to yourself so that the, the grace that we know and the, the, the knowledge we have of you might so overflow that it will reach others and they will have a desire to know you and to trust in you. Lord, we thank you that nothing is impossible with you. We pray at this time for the uh, wider church. We thank you, Lord, for uh, our denomination. We thank you for news of, of new uh, churches, for new church plants, for congregations that have grown in strength and have become established churches. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would continue to bless and encourage in, in places where perhaps there, there's been a new beginning, a new church plant. Lord, give grace and wisdom and, and provide all that is needed uh, for those work, these works to go forward. 
We do remember uh, Bob Ackroyd at this time, the moderator of the last assembly. We pray for your blessing on him. We thank you for the way that you have upheld him in the midst of his own circumstances, that you have given him the grace that he needs. And we ask that you would continue to bless him. Bless him in his work in the the seminary in Edinburgh and bless him uh, as he serves the wider church. We pray also at this time for Callum MacLeod who has just been uh, announced as as the next moderator. We ask that you would bless him and we thank you Lord for all that he has done over these past years as the clerk of the church. We pray for your blessing upon him and pray that he might have the the grace and the strength that he needs to serve you uh, in whatever uh, way he is asked to do, that he might know your presence with him and be upheld at this time. Lord, graciously hear us. Again, we commit to you the troubled places of the earth. Your word reminds us that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so we pray at this time for Israel and the Middle East again, as once again there is violence and terrible suffering and the loss of life. Lord, have mercy, we pray, and bring an end to these things. Protect your own people and grant them all the grace and the wisdom that they need. And as we pray that for that part of the world, we think of other places Sometimes places that uh, come onto the the news and then disappear. But yet there is still unrest. There is violence. Uh, Lord, we remember the situation in Ukraine and in Russia. Lord, have mercy, we pray, and bring an end to these things. Give wisdom to those who are rulers of the nations. Guide them, we ask. Lord, hear us in these our prayers as we offer them in Jesus' name. Amen. We praise God once more as we sing together in the words of Psalm 118, uh, in Sing Psalm, Psalm 118. And we're going to sing at the beginning of the psalm uh, and then the, at the end. So Psalm 118, uh, first of all at the beginning of the psalm. Singing uh, verses 1 uh, and 1 to 4. And then singing at the end, verses 27 to 29. Oh, thank the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures always. Now let the house of Israel say, his love will last through endless days. We sing the first two stanzas and the last two of Psalm 118.
We turn back to the passage we read together in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus and in in chapter 6. We might read one or two verses once again. So reading at verse 2, reading from verse 2 to the end of verse 4 and then at the beginning of verse 7 where we read, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And then, At verse 7 God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Our theme tonight is the subject of God's covenant love. God's covenant love. I wonder if I were to ask you how you would describe yourself as somebody who has come to this building, to this church uh, tonight. We might say, well, we're Christians, or we're believers. There are different ways, words that we might use. Uh, The followers of Jesus at the very beginning uh, weren't called Christians, of course. They described themselves, or other people maybe described them as followers of the way. Followers of the way. But we are also the people of God. Or, to define it even more precisely, we are God's covenant people. And the word covenant, of course, is a great Bible word. It's used over 300 times in Scripture between the Old and the New Testament. Historically, of course, we are aware of it because this is often referred to as the land of the covenanters. In 1638, a national covenant was signed in this country and over 360 people, inhabitants of Scotland, signed it expressing their desire that Scotland would be a covenanted nation to God. A noble desire. There's a copy, one of the uh, few copies that have survived of uh, that document hanging in the the building in Edinburgh in the Presbytery Hall. Uh, One of the national covenants. These were circulated all around the country and people could sign them uh, as a, a statement of their desire to enter into a covenant with God. A covenant then, as we know, is an agreement between two parties. But in the case of of the biblical covenants, of course, it's not an agreement between equals. It's God who takes the initiative. It's God who institutes the covenant, who states the terms of the the covenant, and who enters into an agreement with different people. An example that we might use that helps us understand the nature of a covenant is marriage, of course. When a man and a woman come together, they make promises. They enter into an agreement. Marriage is a covenant relationship where promises are made between two parties. And so tonight we're thinking about these biblical covenants, which um, there were a series of. As we go through scripture we see God entering into covenants with different people. And so first of all there's the covenant with Noah. And the covenant with Noah is interesting because it doesn't just apply to Noah and his family. It is essentially a covenant that's made with Noah 
on behalf of the entire human race. And it's one that we get great comfort from because in that covenant God says to Noah that never again will he bring a catastrophic disaster upon the earth such as the flood was. Yes, there will be judgments, yes, there will be disasters, but never will there be something to the extent uh, which was experienced in the time of Noah. And he also tells Noah that as long as the earth endures, there will be seed time and harvest, summer and winter. In other words, there will be certain norm, a certain normality, even although we live in a fallen world. Things will continue. Yes, there will be variations and there will be rain like we've had yesterday and today. But generally speaking, things will continue as they have right until the end of this world when Christ returns. And so there's the covenant with Noah. But then God makes a covenant with Abraham. And with Israel, the the nation. And that's what we're focusing on here in, in Exodus. The people of God. The descendants of Abraham. And then with David. And on into the new covenant. And at the heart of each covenant that God makes. There is something very gracious and very special. And we have it here in verse 7. As God says to the people, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. That lies at the very heart of the covenant relationship. God is saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that is like a golden thread, as it were, that runs throughout scripture from beginning to end. We see it in each covenant. I just want to briefly demonstrate that for us tonight. So in the covenant with Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 7. Listen to what God says to Abraham. I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. There's the heart of that covenant that we've read here in verse 7. Again, as we come to the covenant with Israel... A few chapters on, as God enters into that covenant formally with the people at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. This is what we're told. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. I will be your God and you will be my people. Or again in the time of David. Once the kingdom is established and the people are resident in the the land. In 2 Kings uh, chapter 11 we read this. Jehoiada then made a covenant between the Lord and the king and people that they would be the Lord's people. I will be your God and you will be my people. And so as the Old Testament looks forward to the, the new covenant... The prophet Jeremiah speaks of this covenant and again it's, it's remarkably similar. In chapter 31 you'll, you'll be familiar with these familiar words. The prophet says, Behold the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke Because I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, 
declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And here we have the same words. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is at the very heart of each covenant that we see. And so the prophet Ezekiel, as he anticipates this new covenant, can say, You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And so then Paul in the New Testament can pick these words up, as it were. And as he writes to the second, his letter, second letter to the Corinthians, he can say this, I will live with them and walk with them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Because at the very heart of each covenant, there is God's grace. When God enters into a covenant with people, it's because of his grace and his mercy that it is possible. And so our catechism reminds us, when it asks the question, um, Did God leave all mankind to die in sin and misery? It gives us this answer. From all eternity and merely because it pleased him, God chose some to have everlasting life. These he freed from sin and misery by a covenant of grace and brought them to salvation by a redeemer. The redeemer, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the only mediator, the mediator of every covenant. Those in the Old Testament looked forward to Christ. You remember Jesus could say, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Down through the centuries, Abraham saw and believed that God would send a saviour into this world, the, the promised Messiah. And he is the, the mediator of the covenant. And so in the promises that God makes here, promises that he makes to Moses on behalf of the people of of Israel, what he says to them applies to us. When he says to them, I will be your God and you will be my people, he says the same thing to us tonight. And so what I want us to look at this evening are to consider, well, what are the, the particular features of this covenant love that God demonstrates for his own people which we see in these verses but which also relate to us tonight what is God's covenant love like this bond of love that God enters into with those who know him and trust in him there are five things that I want us to notice first of all this covenant love is an electing love An electing love. God chooses his people. We have it there in verses 3 and 4. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. When God first appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia, Abraham with the pagan worship that he was part of, as everybody else was. When God made himself known, he gave him these promises. He entered into a covenant with him. 
And he did that because of his sovereign choice. Not because of anything that he saw in Abraham or in anyone else. And so the, uh, the Moses, as he writes in, in Deuteronomy, can remind the people as they think of that the fact that they have been chosen by God. He reminds them of this truth in chapter 7 and at verse 6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then in case they, they begin to think, well, you know what? There were lots of things that were good about us and therefore God was bound to choose us. They're told this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that God, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. They were chosen because God chose them, because God set his love upon them, not because of anything intrinsically good in them and that's something we need to remind ourselves of again and again C.S. Lewis puts it like this no sooner do we believe that God loves us than there is an impulse to believe that he does so not because he is love but because we are intrinsically lovable God's choice is a sovereign choice God's choice is election, not selection. When we choose, we usually look for something attractive. We make a selection. We we choose that which is pleasing to us. That is not the, the case with God. And our election then is the same as Israel's. And so Paul can say as he writes to the Ephesians, For he chose us in him, in Christ. Or again in verse 11, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to his plan. But maybe you're thinking, as we read these words, but I've chosen Christ. I made that choice. I I chose to believe in Christ, to trust in Christ as my own saviour. Yes, you did, and so did I. But let me put it like this. Before us there's a door. And above the door there are these words, choose you this day whom you will serve. And we are confronted by that choice. And as we go through that door, when we look back, on the other side of the door, above the door, are the words, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. It's because of God's sovereign choice that we were able to choose Christ for ourselves. And that's what should incentivize us to engage in evangelism. It's because God has a people in this world, a people whom he has chosen, that we can go out with confidence and share the message, the good news of the gospel. Because God has a people that he in his sovereign will has chosen. God's love is an electing love. Secondly, God's love is a redeeming love. It's a saving love. As you cast your eye down these verses in chapter 6, you'll see a pronoun appearing again and again. And it's the pronoun I. 
I established, I remembered, I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, I will take you, I will be your God, I will bring you into the land. God is saying again and again to Moses, I am the one who will save my people and bring them out of slavery and bring them in to the promised land. It is all of God. It is his work. And we need to remember that because sometimes when we read the Old Testament and we read a book like Exodus and we see God giving the law to his people, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, which sum up the the, the law really, we might think, well, it appears as if people were being saved by their own efforts, by keeping the law. But we need to remember that when God gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai, the people who received it were a redeemed people. Listen to how chapter 20 begins where we have the Ten Commandments. At the beginning of that chapter we read this. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then we have the Ten Commandments. In other words, God is giving the law, the Ten Commandments, to a people who have been redeemed. Whom he has redeemed. And he's giving them the law as a way of life. As a guide to them. As a way for their, as a, as a rule book, if you like, as to how to live. The law is there as our guide. And Jesus, of course, summed up the law. What does the law help us to do? It's to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That is what God's moral law is there for. And we have it as a redeemed people. So that we might live in a way that is pleasing to God. The law doesn't save us, we know that. But it's there for those who have been redeemed to guide them and to show them how they should live. It was God who saved his people. But we know also that God didn't just do it by a sovereign act. He did it under the protection of the blood. Because as you go on in the next few chapters, of course, we come to the the ten plagues. The ten plagues of Egypt. The ten disasters. And the final one, of course, was the killing of the death of the firstborn in Egypt. But you remember what Moses instructed the people to do. They were to take a lamb, they were to kill it, and they were to take the blood and they were to put it round the doorposts of their house. And so when the angel of death came, the angel of death passed over, and the Israelites were safe, but the firstborn in Egypt died. That was how God saved his people. And all of that was pointing forward to what the death of Jesus would accomplish when he died and when his blood was shed so that our sins might be forgiven. And so again Paul can say as he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus is the Lamb of God. All the lambs that were ever offered, including the Passover lamb, pointed forward to him. 
Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The price of our redemption was paid in the death of Jesus Christ. And that means again as Paul as he applies that truth, as he applies it to these believers as to how they should live, he says to them, we are not our own. A price has been paid and that was the death of the Lord Jesus. We no longer belong to ourselves, we belong to God. Our bodies belong to God. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. It was God who accomplished the redemption of his people. And he did so under the protection of the blood that was shed. His love is a redeeming love, a saving love. But thirdly, this love is an adopting love. An adopting love. Here in this chapter, in verse, the verse 7 that we read, God speaks of these people. He says, I will take you to be my people. And back in chapter 4 of Exodus, this is what God has said, uh, instructed Moses to say to Pharaoh. Chapter 4 and verses 23 and following. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So there's the link. There, there's why the firstborn was going to die in Egypt. Because God had already said to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And that's of course why the prophet Hosea can say in chapter 11, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. What have we just encountered here in the Old Testament? We've encountered that wonderful doctrine that we touched on this morning. The doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption whereby God brings people like us into his family. Here God is saying, I am bringing these people, these Israelites, I am adopting them. They are my firstborn son. Now God already has a son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has only one son. But by adoption, we are brought into that position. We are adopted into the family of God. We become his children. And so John can say in his gospel in chapter 1, To all who received him, that's received Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The psalmist can speak in those terms in Psalm 103. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. That is the wonder of God's covenant love. He brings us into fellowship with him. He makes us his children. Just two things before we, we leave this point. Adoption is the highest privilege which God can confer upon us. When we are converted, when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, we are justified. 
We are declared righteous. And in that relationship God is our judge. And we are said to be not guilty. And we are able to walk out of that court. Because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to us. But in adoption God makes us his children. And he becomes our father. And so as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. We can pray in these terms. Our Father who is in heaven. It's no wonder that John. The same John who wrote the gospel in his letter can say. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. You can almost sense the, the amazement in, his, in, in these words. As he considers the reality of what it means. To be a child of God. It's no wonder that um, Charles Wesley could write in one of his hymns. Oh how shall I the greatness tell. Father of which thou hast showed to me. That I a child of wrath and hell. Should be called a child of God. A great privilege. But also a great responsibility. With privilege comes responsibility. There is first of all then. The fact that we carry the family, uh, family name. That's what it's like for, for a parent. As they perhaps help their children. As they make their way in the world. And the parent might well say to the child. Remember who you are. Remember the family you belong to. Make sure you don't let the family down. I remember having to say that to my son because he happened to attend the same school that I worked in. And there were times when I would say, look, I work in this school. Remember that, you know, remember who you are. King George V apparently said it to his son as he prepared him to take over. Always remember who you are. We carry the name of Christ. We are God's people. We are God's children. We need to remember that. But secondly we carry the family likeness. In each family there are certain traits that are passed on as it were from parents to children. And so it must be with us as God's people. Our God is holy. And so we are called to be holy. Just as he is holy. That is God's desire for us, isn't it? That we are made and become like Christ. Paul puts it like this. As he expresses that same desire. He says that Christ may be formed in you. That your life might show forth the Lord Jesus Christ. God's love is an adopting love. Fourthly, it is a steadfast love. In other words, God is faithful to his people. He keeps his promises. In these verses that we read, God takes Moses back to the very beginning, as it were, to Abraham, to Isaac, and the promises he made to them. Promises which were not fulfilled in their lifetime. They hardly spent any time in the promised land. They did not see the the promises being fulfilled that, that God had given to Abraham. But that didn't mean that God had forgotten his promises. Or that God had forgotten his word. 
God keeps his word. He is faithful to his promises. Our love can be so fickle. It can be up, it can be down, it can be all over the place. But God's love is steadfast. We sang of it in in Psalm 36. In these verses that we sang, in each, almost every other verse, the psalmist was talking about God's steadfast love. And that, of course, is a reference to God's covenant love. Every time we see that in, in Scripture, it's a reference to the special covenant love that God has for his people. And the Psalms celebrate it again and again. For example, in in the group of Psalms known as the Egyptian Hallel, Psalm 113 through to Psalm 118, again and again, there is a reference there to God's steadfast love. Older versions talked about God's mercy or his loving kindness. But I think steadfast love is, is a very helpful way to describe it. It's a love that is faithful and true. It's a love that we can rely upon. God keeps his word. Time may pass. And we might think, well, what's happening? Why is God delaying? Why is God not doing what he said he would do? Well, he knows the answer to that question, even if we don't. But one thing is sure. He keeps his word. He keeps his promises. And so here as he speaks to Moses, he's reminding Moses, yes, I made these promises. And just as I made them to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob and to you now, I will keep them. And I will deliver you from this land and bring you into the promised land. God's steadfast love is based on his character. It's based on who he is. We can rely upon him. We can trust him. We can depend on him. And we can see in scripture how God demonstrated his faithfulness and his steadfast love to his own people. And we can rejoice in that tonight. What security that gives us in this world that we live in to know that we are recipients of God's steadfast, faithful love. But fifthly and finally, we see that God's covenant love is an Emmanuel love. Now you know that the word Emmanuel means God with us. And that's what we see in God's love for his people. A desire that God expresses to be with his people. We see it from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, as God comes looking for Adam... We're told there that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden. And then God speaks and he says, Adam, where are you? That's God expressing his desire to be with his people. It's the same thing that we see here in Exodus. As God speaks to Moses and then as he speaks to his successor, Joshua, what does he say to them? I will be with you. I will be with you. And so God continued to be with them. And as they travelled on their way from Egypt to the promised land, they were intense. And what did God ask Moses to do? To build a tent in the middle for him. 
the tabernacle. God saying to the people, I am going to be with you. I am going to be right there in the, in, in, in the midst of you. And so the psalmist in Psalm 46 that we'll finish with can say twice, The Lord Almighty is with us. But that desire of God finds even fuller expression as we come to the New Testament. Again at the beginning of John's Gospel, John says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally tabernacled amongst us. God came as it were and pitched his tent with us in the person of his own son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus became one of us. He was here to be with us. But you might say, well, that was fine for the disciples, for these early followers who lived at the time when Jesus was here in this world. What about us? Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples as he prepared to leave them? He promised them the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he said this to them. The Holy Spirit, he will be with you and in you. There's the reality of God's desire to be with his own people. He now dwells within us by the Holy Spirit so that we are not alone. We are not on our own. We are not left to ourselves. God is with us by the Holy Spirit. That's how God shows his covenant love for us. I'm sure some of you will have read the, the story of, of Corrie ten Boom and, and the, the family in Holland who hid Jewish people. And you may have seen the film. It's a remarkable story. But in the film, um, eventually the family have been hiding Jewish people and then they're betrayed. And a raid, the soldiers come, the house is raided. They don't find the Jews who are hiding in a secret uh, room. But everybody else, the whole of the family who are there, are taken away and they're put into an army truck. And the officer counts them and he counts and he says, Only six. And Father Ten Boom says, No, there are seven. God is with us. That's the reality of faith in Jesus Christ. God is with us. And so we can remind ourselves of that. And whatever challenges we face, whatever difficulties we may experience, God is with us. But in a sense, even although we know the Holy Spirit with us in this world... That's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. For that we need to turn to Revelation uh, chapter 21. And there the, as John sees the new heaven and the new earth. This is what we read. Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them. And be their God. The same promise that we saw at the beginning. I will be your God. And you will be my people. And John continues. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning. Or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. God is finally with his people. And they are with him. 
That's how God demonstrates his covenant love for us. And so his covenant love is a very special love. It's an electing love whereby God chooses people to be his people. It's a redeeming love whereby God redeems us by his own power and and grace through the death of the Lord Jesus. It's an adopting love whereby God brings us into his family as his children. It's a steadfast love, a faithful love that we can depend upon. And it's an Emmanuel love. A love whereby we are with God and he is with us. And we have that assurance and that peace and that security for all eternity. May God bless our meditation on his truth. Shall we pray together? Our gracious God and our Father, we thank you that you are great and so and good. We thank you for your amazing love and mercy towards us. And we thank you tonight that we can say, You are our God, and we are your people. Bless our meditation on your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we conclude our our worship as we sing together in the words of Psalm 46, the psalm that we were referring to? Uh, We sing from verse 7 in in Sing Psalms, from verse 7 to the end of the psalm. And this section begins with these words and then ends with these words. The Lord Almighty is with us to strengthen and sustain. For Jacob's God, our strong defence and fortress will remain. We sing these five stanzas as we worship God.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority 